All right, all right, all right. Bit of, a, bit of an abrupt stop to that music there. But hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to VUX World. I'm your host, Kane Sims. And if you haven't already booked your tickets to Edinburgh, you should do that immediately. The Edinburgh EU Chatbot Summit is happening in March and uh, VUX World will have a stage there and we're going to be doing a track at the Edinburgh Summit. It's going to be absolutely amazing. We've got Vodafone talking about how they've built Toby. We've got Love Holidays talking about how they built Sandy. We're going to be talking all about how enterprises are automating and getting business value from conversational AI. It's on the 16th, 15th and 16th of March. You can save 30% on your tickets, might even be 40%, if you go to the website, theeuropeanchatbot.com and use the promo code uh, VUXEU23. It's presented by Core AI, and we're going to hear a load more about this over the next few weeks, so please do check it out. Now, my guest today is the co-founder of one of the most exciting companies in the NLP space, Core here. It is Nick Frost. Nick, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Thank you for joining me. From uh, coming from uh, from Canada, from Toronto, very very uh, hot spot, basically, isn't it, Toronto for for tech tech startups and that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. These days, it really is, and in particular for AI, uh, great place to be for that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, shout out to our friends at VoiceFlow who uh, were founded in in Toronto, which is uh, yeah, very good stuff. Very good stuff. Uh, so thank you for joining me, Nick. Really appreciate it. Thanks for spending some time with me. Your kind of uh, your uh, website and emails and all that kind of stuff must be must be kind of going absolutely ballistic at the moment. It seems as though in the last three months, the whole world has woken up to the power of LLMs. Yeah. Yeah, that it's there's been a real shift uh, in the past few months um, since the public release of ChatGPT, and that's so it's a, yeah, it's a really exciting, really exciting time for the space. Yeah, mm, yeah definitely, definitely. Um, it's an interesting area. I mean, there's been a lot of work and, and a lot of really interesting kind of uh, applications that existed before that kind of ChatGPT was was kind of released. But it just seems as though what that managed to do was just to put it into on the radar of let's say the, the average person, so to speak, yeah. you know, which, yeah. uh, which is good. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm not the first person in, inside the space to, to like think about this and point this out, but I think what like chat GPT's brilliance was not like a scientific uh, breakthrough. It wasn't uh, it, like the reason why it did so well wasn't because we figured out some new machine learning technique uh, or because we tried some new like architecture or something. It, it really just took off because the folks at OpenAI did a really great job of taking existing tech and training it on a very particular type of data. And so that when people interacted with the model, it gives the impression of it being much, much better than what's come before. Um, and for a usability point of view, like it, it totally is. Uh, it's way easier for the average person to like put in something to chat GPT and get out some useful text. Um, but it's underpinned by the same stuff that, you know, that the, that OpenAI has been building before. Like they, you know, they have a series of models and, and ChatGPT is a natural progression, not of like scientific development, but of just the data that they're modeling. Um, and likewise, you know, Cohere, like we, we sell a bunch of models um, that follow instructions. We now fine tune off of human feedback the same way. Um, and we've been seeing as we've continued to do that, like it's just so much easier for people to use the tech. So I think it's super interesting that it's like this thing that is what woke the world up to the power of it. Um, and I think it's really like a parable of 
you know, talks about not, it, it says something about not underestimating UX. And like, it's one thing to build mm. that technology and another to tailor it and like make it specifically useful for people in a conversational thing that really illustrates the, like the wide range of stuff it can do really well. So yeah, super exciting time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I thought that that time would have come with Alexa because it was kind of like purpose built to talk to and you talk to it and it should talk back to you, but it didn't quite have the same impact, did it? It was very much a slow burner, Alexa. Well, yeah, Um, and that's because Alexa and Google Home um, and Siri were all built on fundamentally different technology. So like when I, you know, I said the difference between GPT and chat GPT or like cohere between our extra large model and our command model. Uh, that's not a difference of technology. That's just a difference of like data. Like what data are we training this model on? But it's the same underlying tech. Now, Alexa, completely different tech. Alexa is like when those things first came out, I remember like I've been you know excited about when those things first came out, I was up in Canada when Google Home came out and I went down to the States like in part because I wanted to get a Google home and they were selling them in the States. They weren't selling them in Canada. Like I was super excited about it. I bought like three, I plugged them into my house. And over the next few years, I slowly unplugged them because they Mm -hmm. didn't like, they fundamentally didn't work because you'd ask it a thing and it wouldn't, it wouldn't quite get it. Or you'd ask it and it it would like do the wrong thing or something. And it very quickly became like a joke. Like the only way I would use them in my house would be for the purpose of asking a stupid thing and getting it to answer because functionally (laughs) it wasn't, it wasn't any more efficient than just using your phone. I mean, the same happened when those were on the phone, right? There was a brief moment when Siri came out. You'd see people walking around the street being like, oh, you know, Siri, like, do this thing. And that stopped really quickly. And the reason it stopped was that if you did that, you looked stupid, like walking (laughs) around the street. And the reason you look stupid was not because we're not used to people, like, talking to their phones in public. Like, that happens all the time. But you look stupid because anybody seeing you did it knew what you were doing was futile. Like knew that what you were doing was not actually more effective than just using the phone. And you were using this technology because you were excited about the technology, not because it was an effective way of, of interacting with your phone. So there was that brief moment. And then and like publicly, everybody knew this was not a good idea. And now it's dropped. Like you don't see people walking around asking Siri to do anything. And that's because it's based on template matching, pattern matching, old school NLP stuff, not based on massive transformers trained on the full web and then refined on human preferences. So like mm. there's a real technological reason for why Alexa didn't wake the world up to this. And that's because there was nothing to be woken up to because like fundamentally the tech underpinning it is not exciting. And that's mm. like different now, like now the text, like the, the tech, you know, the models that cohere serves are really good at do at solving problems and doing things. We have a lot, like we, we have, we're still going to make them better. There's a long way to go. Stuff that, um, like same with the people at OpenAI and the other large language model providers out there. Like we all, I think we're all just scratching the surface of what this can be, de- what can be delivered by these models. Whereas when Alexa came out, that was the best it was going to get. And it kind of only went mm. downhill from there. Yeah. Mm, interesting. So you kind of alluded to some of the differences there. I wonder if you can explain a little bit more about some of the differences between Cohere's language models and how that works. You mentioned and alluded to transformers there versus maybe it's more of an intent-based kind of model. I wonder if you can explain a little bit about what some of those fundamental differences are and what the impact of, of that is for Cohere, for example. Yeah, absolutely. So so we so we build language models that are based on transformers. Um, those are the, That's the same underlying tech that uh, OpenAI uses. Um, our, our co-founder Aiden was involved in the paper that first introduced those 
those models. Um, the paper's called Attention is All You Need, and that that's the paper that came out in 2017 that kind of kicked off this whole thing. Um, so it's the same under, underlying tech. We, we put a lot of effort into making these models like particularly useful for business applications. Um, so we're not, we're not an AGI shop. Like we're, mm-hmm. Cohere is not a company dedicated to building artificial general intelligence. We're a company dedicated to taking large language models and making them like useful and ready to solve real world problems as, as soon as possible. Um, so that like bears out in a, in a few ways in the product we offer. Like for instance, we just released, um, we just released a, uh, an embedding model that can do search and it can do search over a hundred different languages. And that's like, you know, the reason why we did that, um, scientifically like stuff like that has been, I guess people have done things like that a little bit before. I, there's never been a model that's quite as good of these, like uh, as a hundred languages for embeddings. Um, and the reason we're doing that is like, that's a business problem people run into. Like frequently, mm-hmm. you know, any global company wants to do semantic search over their documents or cluster things that they've gotten in from customers or do intent matching from like messages or something. Any global company is a multilingual company. Like it's a multilingual world. So, so you know, that's a reason why we, we pushed really hard on that. So those little differences of us not being interested in AGI, but instead being interested in like solving problems bear out in, in a few ways across what we're prioritizing. Mm, very interesting. And what kind of other examples would there be? I know that you kind of alluded to some there around intent matching and classification, semantic search you kind of mentioned with those embeddings. Like, I wonder if you can share a bit of an example of how companies are sort of utilizing this technology and how that manifests itself in, in various use cases that you're noticing at some of those companies. Um, yeah, I mean, so we, we, we sell a classification endpoint as well. So you can give text and a few examples of how you'd like things to be classified and classify. Um, and people have been using that for, for a wide range of things. The embedding thing is, uh, yeah, the big use cases are search. So like you have a, you have a hundred documents and you want to find the most relevant one, give it a, a query and you can get it back. Um, but then the other, like the, the, the other ones that are a little more odd are like automatic cluster detection or something. So you have like, you know, a thousand documents and you want to figure out like what, what are the types of things people saying? Um, I've seen that, that those are endpoints can be combined to do like groundedness. So if you want to generate from a, you want to generate from a model, like you want to answer some question about something, but you want to pull from a knowledge database, well, then you can like use, you know, the embedding endpoint to find the relevant text, give that the generate model and then generate the answer from that. Um, Mm. Yeah. So the, the embedding stuff, a lot of the time is, is based around various forms of search. It's like, that's really what it's the best for. And then classification after that, um, the generate stuff, like that's the, the use cases are, are, are wildly diverse. That's like one thing that has been really fun about running a company like Cohere is that like, you know, you check in on what people are, you ask people what they're building with Cohere, get them to show you. And it's, I'm frequently surprised and like excited. <laughs> well, wow, I didn't know you could do that. And then you, you know, see this thing come up. So. That's pretty fun. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it's amazing how, you know, language understanding and, and natural language processing, the 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 use case that, that I, mean, I gravitate to this all the time because this is the kind of world that we operate in is, is conversational assistance, yeah. chatbots, voice assistants, things like that. But when you see some of the things that get created with some of these large language models, it is it is absolutely amazing, isn't it? You know, from yeah. things like writing assistance and, and and all these kind of different programs, it's 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 amazing. What are some of the sort of like, I don't know, maybe it's the recent things that you've seen from 
a product perspective that you know people have been building with Cohere that's been you know different or, or really impressive I saw somebody somebody like at a hackathon somebody came and showed me a thing that they had built with Cohere where it was like a website where you'd upload a PDF and then could ask questions about the PDF right and that was like really cool so he would show you like oh like he you know we were at, actually it wasn't a hackathon you're we at a, a, a conference at U of T and so he like uploaded the PDF that was the ticket and the schedule for the conference. And then instead of like looking, trying to read through and find where the stuff was, he just had his little app open, like asking questions about it. So he'd be like, Oh, when's lunch or something? And it would tell him like that was, yeah. Interesting. That was, that was pretty if, cool. Yeah. That is cool. I mean, that makes me think of like, you know, a, a company that has a knowledge base or even a mm-hmm. website mm-hmm. with content been developing an application where you could just ask a question and it would take that content and and you know find it with that yeah i think we're quite close to every website just having a little bot window that is like Mm. pulling the source material from the website and it's just a a, a navigational tool so like imagine you know you have your fact your you frequently asked questions listed somewhere you have information about your website whatever and instead of the user coming to the website, having to navigate and finding the relevant thing, they'll just open up the thing and be like, well, what, where's the, you know, what, what's the return policy? And it'll just grab the relevant stuff and, and push it there. Yeah. So I think yeah. we're very, very close to that. How much, how much kind of, how much of the heavy lifting does Cohere's language model do in a use case like that versus the customer needing to configure it in a certain way, add various parameters, give it certain training data? Like where does, where does, where does the effort kind of sit? Is it a case of you plugging Cohere and all of a sudden you've got it up and running or is there more to it to tune it and stuff like that? Yeah. So, I mean, this is maybe an interesting conversation on just like where this, where the space is right now. So like we, you know, we, we sell an API, we sell an API into large language models. With that API, the thing I just described could be built like very easily. It could be, you know, it could, it could, you could go and use our embedding to find, you know, our, our embedding endpoint to find the relevant text. You could then put that into a prompt into our command model, our command nightly model, which is being constantly updated um, and improved. You could say, answer the following question based on this text. Here's the question. Um, we, we sell that API. We don't sell a front end. Like we don't sell a, you know, we don't sell a little, a widget that sell, we don't sell an integration. Like we, we sell the, the raw tools. Um, and that's true for like us and the other companies that are out there right now. Like there's uh, AI 21, open AI, like the, you know, the other, the other handful of companies that sell um, models like this access to models. And that's because uh, it takes an enormous amount of resources and time to build models like this. Like there's a reason why there's only a few companies in the world that are that are releasing models uh, because it's enormously resource intensive and it takes a really particular skill set and a really a whole like the time and focus of a lot of really smart people. So that's what we're like you like we're focused on that API like that's what we want to add the value on. But I think you know it's such an exciting time for this tech because just figuring out like you know just if somebody you know you see a use case of hey like I know I could build that or something or I know I could add this into my site like there's a real lot of opportunity now that we're and the other people out there are selling access to these models for people to build stuff on top of it. Um, mm. And that, the building stuff on top of it, like the language modeling part of it is really only a small piece. Like the language modeling of the thing I just described is pretty straightforward. Um, the UX, like figuring out what it looks like, figuring out where it should be, like figuring out how to communicate to the user that what you're getting back is, is generated from a language model, figuring out how to like 
make sure you're, you're, you're displaying the relevant text you saw in case the user wants to like validate like what the source of that information was or things like that. Like those are all decisions that would need to be made. Um, and our mm-hmm. expertise in making the language models and giving them, giving access to developers for them to build stuff like this. Mm, interesting. Where did that expertise come from then? So, you know, th- you mentioned that there, there isn't a whole huge number of people and companies that do this, you know, AI 21, open AI, you know, mm. I'm, I'm sure. And I know from behind the scenes of Alexa and stuff that Amazon have got some kind of things going on, but it's not publicly available. Mm. Same thing with Google Lambda, you know, it's, it's kind of got things kicking off, but it's not really publicly available. Like, and it's because it, because it's takes a lot of data, takes a lot of compute, takes a lot of skills. Where mm. did it come from? from for you then where did where did how did you get into a situation where you think to yourself i think i'm going to create a company that's going to basically have an api that that, that kind of produces large yeah. language models where well, did like that me come personally from? i mean personally yeah 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 oh, sure yeah um well yeah so i mean i've i've been uh, i got into i've been excited about ai for a while now um i worked at Google um, here in Toronto under Jeff Hinton for three years. Um, I was one of the, uh, so we, we like started up the Toronto brain office. Um, and I had the, yeah, the, the, I was extraordinarily lucky to get to work and learn from him for, for many years. Um, for those of you who don't know, Jeff Hinton is a, is a researcher who's largely credited as one of the three inventors of, of neural nets. Um, so he was really pivotal in the, wow. in the creation. He's been working on neural nets for, Oh, I don't know. His whole life, as far as I can tell. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I I got to work with him, and that that's really where I like you know hone like it's really I feel like I built chops as a as a researcher. Um, and I was not working on language when I was working in the brain office in Toronto. I was working on vision stuff, capsule networks, adversarial examples, and explainable ML. Um, none of which are really related to language at the time. But that's where I met Aiden Gomez, who's the the another co-founder of Cohere. And he was an author of one of, of the paper that kicked off the Transformers stuff. So talking to him, he got me really excited about language modeling. Uh, and then we noticed, you know, we noticed in Google that language models were having an impact on what Google was building. You know, we were seeing like, wow, this tech is like really, you know, it's making things so much better. It's making search better. It's making all these things within Google better. But like nobody outside of Google has access to these. So it was mm-hmm. that that made us, along with our other co-founder, Ivan, who's an, um, was really excited about this stuff too. It was us, that that kind of galvanized us to be like, cool, let's let's go out, let's make a company with the express purpose of creating large language models and giving people access to them so that they can build stuff with them. Mm, nice. And when what what year was that? We started at uh, 2020, so we've been doing this for three years now. Wow, interesting. It's interesting how you know that's a fairly short space of time, and and yeah. to go from just an idea to being one of the kind of major LLM players is quite a, quite an achievement. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's, so it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. It's challenging. It's certainly hard, but it's been a lot of fun and it's an exciting space and it keeps on getting more exciting. So yeah. mm. what, 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 what is the, cha- the most kind of challenging part? What's been the biggest sort of challenges you've had to overcome over the last three years? Um, I think one of the biggest challenges is just how fast the space moves. Like it's like, I feel Mm. like I learn something new about transformers like every few weeks or something, or people (laughs) change their mind about the right way to train them or they, 
you know, point out some new thing that you didn't think they could do that actually they, they can do and or that point out, hey, if, you know, something they can do, if they just had the right data, then they could do that too. So just keeping up with the pace of this um, has been has been challenging. Yeah. But mm. I mean, that's what makes it fun. That's what makes it exciting. Yeah. yeah and that's absolutely. what makes it, I think that's challenging for the people who work here. Um, like I think everybody at Cohere finds like, wow, you know, I'm working on a tech that's like changing underneath me. And, and one day I'll be working on something and then somebody else, you know, down the hall will, will find something else out that's like super relevant to what I'm working on. So I think keeping that up, like that pace is certainly challenging for people here. Um, but I think that's, I think that's one of the things that excites them. And I think that's why there's so many people who are here who work so hard. Like, you know, mm-hmm. Cohere is really for people who like give it their all. Um, and I think that in part, I think that's because the technology itself is just like a fun thing to, to, to try your hardest at. Yeah. Mm, it's interesting because a lot of the companies that we speak with, they have this feeling that they're kind of not quite able to keep up with things, not quite able to keep up with technology, not quite able to keep up with where yeah. things are headed and stuff like that. Yet Cohere is a company that is at the bleeding edge of this. Yeah. And it's not as if like you're just sitting about like noticing things happening in the external environment and then reacting to it. It sounds as though you're actually, you know, you're on the bleeding edge. So you're the company basically that's pushing the boundaries and finding new avenues of, of improving things and stuff like that. So how do you kind of, how do you, how do you manage that side of things? Because obviously you mentioned there, everyone at Core here is working at trying to, you know, trying to improve things, trying to discover new things, researching new areas, like how do you manage that? Because it sounds like it could be quite chaotic. Yeah, I mean, we try our best, you know. Like, yeah, we just we just, we just try our best. Uh, yeah, I think I think there's. I think some people might be tempted, in my position, to say, "Oh yeah, we totally know what's going on. Like we're ahead of the curve. Like we're we're always you know we're always." five steps ahead, you know, we're playing 4D chess over here or something, but mm. that's like when you're working on a tech, when you're working on a company whose core offering is keeping up to date with scientific developments, putting those into practice and making them useful for people. I know we're just, yeah, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta hire really smart people. You gotta hire really passionate people. You gotta hire people who like the technology itself. Uh, and then you all mm. have to try your hardest. And there are moments where you say like, wow, wow, we totally, we made the wrong, you know, we bet on the wrong horse there. Like we thought this was the best learning algorithm. And now this paper came out that says, actually, no, that's a terrible learning algorithm. You need to use this one. Or sometimes we read a paper that says, this is definitely the right way to do it. Like this is the data that you need. And we find out internally, actually that data is not helpful at all. We didn't need that. And we spent a bunch of, we spent time working on it. So um, I think that's just the nature of, the nature of working a tech like this. Yeah. Mm. And how much of what you do is kind of like that one hand, it seems more kind of exploratory, which is new research comes out. You're on top of the new research. You're trying to put that stuff into practice to build a better product versus another approach to some products would be, we've got a defined roadmap that we know Mm -hmm. because we've either got feedback from customers or we know ourselves that there's things that we need to do, which is a bit more kind of, you know, planned, how how much yeah. of what you do is 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 like planned? We've got a roadmap. We know what's coming up in the next six months. We're going to just build that versus yeah. exploratory. Like we're keeping on top. We're trying this. We're trying that, and we're kind of trying to see if we can break new ground. Is is there a kind of balance between those two? I would. It's certainly a bit of both. It's certainly a bit of both. Um, I think we we resp- 
respond to our users a little bit more than perhaps some of the other um, LLM providers out there. So we spend a little more time, I think, talking to people and being like, okay, what do you, you know, what do you actually need? Like, this is cool tech, but like, like what do you actually need? Like, what's actually going to solve the problem? Um, and so that probably weights us a little, a little more on the like listening to users, hearing what they need, defining a roadmap, communicating that roadmap to them, you know, and then trying to trying to build it. Um, probably weights us a little bit more than the like open ended. We're just you know going to work on on anything that we think is pushing us towards AGI. Um, but we certainly are pushing the boundaries. We're certainly like trying to do new stuff, break new ground for the sake of building a useful product. Um, mm. yeah. Nice. Uh, you kind of alluded to transformers there. Could you explain to someone who isn't familiar with transformers what a transformer based NLP system is and how that yeah. kind of functions? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Someone who isn't familiar with transformers or someone who isn't familiar with machine learning? Um, I think there's probably people listening who are broadly familiar with machine learning. There's people cool. who, um, I'm just thinking of the more kind of creatives who are more conversation designers. Mm-hmm. They understand if you talk about entities and, and intents and you know model training and stuff like that. But when we start getting into the realms of discussing specific training methodologies and specific technologies, okay. it's not really their remit. Yeah. Okay. Well, that that inf- that informs the answer because that kind of stuff, the like, oh, intent matching or things like that, is I think is increasingly less relevant. Mm. Um, so if you guys have you guys have been running this for a while around chatbots, and I imagine a lot of mm-hmm. what it's based off is like, you know, things like voice flow or something, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. you know, uh, which which is a, a conversational tree that you define. And there's like nodes in it, right? And if somebody says this, then we're going to go down this route and then we're going to do this and something. And you can like design that whole thing. And that's the chatbot. It kind of exists in this static mm-hmm. form. That's not what, what chat GPT is. That's not what like, you know, the, the people who have built chatbots with our models, like that's not, that's not what they're building. Um, it's, so that's the kind of, I mean, I talked earlier about the like Siri versus LLM thing. Yeah. And, like that's yeah, yeah. the so those older things are like template matching. They were like, you know, if somebody asks a question that's about this, then we're going to respond with this or something. Um, mm-hmm. And you can use neural nets to fit. You can use machine learning to train. When are we going to do that jump? Like somebody said this, but oh, they really should be talking about this. Like, when are we going to do that? But that's that you're still like within the realm of a tree of a conversational tree. Yeah. Um, the chatbots coming out now and that I think will come out over the next little bit are, are much um they're much more like sampling just from the model. So the way that works is, and the way transformers work is we create this neural net and we train this neural net on to be really good at predicting the next word in a sequence of words. So like that's the, that's the training regime. We, we take as much data as we can. We start with all the text we could get from the web and we train the model so that when, uh, so that when it sees a list of like a, a sequence of words, it does a good job of predicting which word is likely to come next. That's, that's like, that, that's the whole thing. It's just a probabilistic model of sequences of words. So that's the baseline model. And if you do that, if you write something like one, two, three, four, five, six, and you let it degenerate, it will write seven, eight, nine, ten. Like it'll just keep counting. Right. Or if you say something like, hello, how are you doing today? I'm very, it might say good or something, you know, it'll output a, a next word. That's like quite normal. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the, so that's the underlying tech is just probabilistic modeling of language. Now you wrap that in a, a, a layer of fine tuning off of 
what people actually think. Like you get a bunch of people, you say, here's the output of the model. Like, was that helpful? And they say, yes, it was. And then you get the model to do more of that. Or they say, no, that's, that's not good. And then you, you remove that. You don't get the model to do that. So when you're done with that, then you don't just have a probabilistic model of language. You have a probabilistic model of language fine-tuned on what people find useful. So that's another thing like you can go on to cohere. You'll be put into our command nightly model. And you can write, you know, write me a blog post outline involving a title and three paragraphs about this awesome podcast I was on where we talk about LMs or something. And then it will output that. Or you can say, you know, write me a, a JSON object with uh, names of all the members of the Beatles and their birthdays, and it'll output that or something. And that's because it's been refined on people giving it instructions and then it following that instruction. Um, you can do that again for chat. And that's, so now it's like, don't just fine tune it off of what, like a command following, fine tune it off of what people find useful in a dialogue. So when we have that, now we're no longer saying if somebody says, you know, what are your hours or something, generate the hours, you're just going to like generate from the model. And that's what ChatGPT is. ChatGPT is just generating from this fine-tuned model. That actually, although very cool as like an individual to use or something, is like not super useful for businesses because businesses mm-hmm. don't just want the model to say when they're open. They actually know when they're open <laughs> and they want the model to like actually listen to this thing. They want the model to be able to say like, okay, I, you know, I don't just sample when most businesses are like when the most likely business to open is read the text that is about my business and give the user that. Um, and that's what our, that's what grounded, that's what grounded question answering is like, that's you can take our generate endpoint. You can use the, uh, like we have an open source repo called grounded QA. Um, and that just combines our endpoints so that you can ask it a question, give it a database of things. Uh, and then it will pull the most relevant thing answer and provide the answer based on that context. Right. So I think that's yeah, like I think that's what that, that's the, that's where the space of chatbots is going to be moving. Yeah. Interesting. So there's a question from from Richard here. Shout out to Richard. Uh, and it's it's I don't know if this is the exact question that you're asking, Richard. I think it could be, but we had we've been looking a lot at at the role of large language models in conversational AI chatbots and, and voice mm-hmm. assistants as well. We've had, um, we've seen a number of the platforms, you know, the enterprise conversational orchestration platforms um, that have the NLUs kind of under the hood talk a lot about kind of the, the core of a conversation, for example, you know, that example you give about opening times mm-hmm. or an example of maybe booking an appointment where there's there's very specific bits of data that are needed in order to, to do yeah. something. You know, what time are you going to turn up? How many people are you going to have in the restaurant if you're going to book a table? Stuff like that. And, and so the, the concept emerging from certain circles is that the core conversation would still be an intent-based conversation based on that older mm-hmm. kind of methodology you just described. And then when something happens that's not expected – Large language models will then come to the rescue, <laughs> so to speak, yeah. and then get the conversation back on track. But what you've kind of just described there in terms of if you're giving the LLM business data, there's no real reason why you couldn't give that LLM business logic and rules. Yeah. For example, book an appointment with this person, make sure you get how many people, what time they're going to turn up and this and the other. So yeah, yeah. I'm just curious about your philosophy in, in terms of where that's going. Do you think there'll still be that intent model needed for those transactional use cases? Or do you think an LLM can handle handle that with yeah. the right kind of input? So, so I, I think we're not going to see a ton of that in the end. Um, I think what we are going to see is an LLM that exists for a company 
It has a database of things, like it has the website where they've written all their facts that it can pull from, and it has a list of things that it can do, like a list of actions. And those actions mm-hmm. will be coded. Those like defined by rules. So the action will be like, you know, someone wants to sign up. Here's the function you call to get somebody to sign up. And that function, maybe it's going to like output a little page for them to fill in, maybe a sequence of messages or something, but it will be like a call to the function. But it's the yellow, it's the LLM that will decide like based on the data that's seen and the, the, the prompt that it's been given when to call those functions. So I kind of think like the inverse of this. Like, I don't think mm. there's going to be, you know, a, a, a voice flow tree that somebody designed that occasionally will have like a node that says question mark, like LLM free space or something. Like, I don't think it's going to be that. It's going to be like an LLM. This is what you're talking to. It has a bunch of information about you and a bunch of things it can do when the conversation requires it. And when those things are called, then it will do stuff. I think the idea of like, you know, every new technology comes along and people are like, oh, the, you know, the hybrid approach with the old one or something. And sometimes they're right. Um, sometimes it's actually, you know, that's, that's what you need, but sometimes it would be like, you know, I've just invented the car, but surely uh, I'll put a trailer and have some horses on the back <laughs> in case the, you know, and then when the car breaks down, I'll, I'll bring the horses out and they can drag the, you know, or it, it would be worse than that. It'd be like, well, you know, I'll, I'll get my horses to carry around a car so that when they get tired, I can back and drive, <laughs> you know, so I don't, yeah. I don't yeah. yeah. Interesting. Interesting. How would you handle things like, um, API calls to to certain business systems that are required to either input or retrieve data. If if an LLM is managing the conversation, have you got you got an API which is mm-hmm. the LLM doing its magic? Presumably, yeah. then you you need some kind of code that handles some logic to do those API calls or not? Yeah. So also, to be clear, what I'm talking about right now, like we we have like this, we haven't built. This is not. This is not an offer. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Hypothetical. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think one day we will have a thing, and 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 we and other people. I think this is the way where the space is moving. Um, so you'll have a thing where you can define like here's a set of actions. Like if somebody says they want to buy these shoes, like what you need to call is add to cart shoe ID user ID blank or something, and like mm. that would be the. Like, and then the model will occasionally output that and you'll have a little thing that's saying like running on the outputs and saying, oh, do they output that? Like, cool, run, do this now or something. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that, like, I, I'm not sure, but I, I've seen LLMs have been used to take action before by, you know, thinking about it, like modeling it like a language problem. And the language problem yeah. is, is just augmented. So instead of it just being a conversation, it's a conversation where every now and again, one of the people says like, do this thing, like asterisk yeah. the thing. And then, we, and then we trigger off of that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because it seems as though that's where a lot of the challenges are in mm-hmm. in the kind of conversational AI chatbot kind of space is that it's one having conversations based on that tree based logic is is an inherent issue, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, I mean, yeah. there, are, there are times where I well, I don't know, I'm trying to think. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I think there are people who've successfully made tree-based chatbots that like add value to their users. Um, and if that's adding value to their users, like throwing an LLM in there for a few things might make sense. Maybe mm-hmm. there's like a moment where it's like, okay, here actually it is just free form. We need to have this free form conversation and then we're going to jump back into the tree. Like maybe that's, that makes sense. But I, I don't know. I don't feel like, I go to a website and I see a little chat window pop up and I can tell that it's a tree-based thing. I'm not going to talk to it. Like, I don't believe in its ability to add value. Like, I think I'm probably a better navigator of the website 
than what that has than that chatbot that exists. I mm. don't think that for LLMs. You know, like we like I have I've, as a as a co-founder, I build lots of stuff with our API, and one of the like I build Discord bots, and some of them I just build for myself. And like I talk that you do useful things for me. Like I don't mm. I don't use Google Search very much anymore. Now I use like an LLM backed search that calls out mm. to search to Google, finds relevant stuff, and then gives it back to me in a conversational flow. So like I yeah I, I imagine if we really want to add value to the to the user and like make sure that you know they're it's a it's better than them just navigating the website. Mm. Got to be powered by an LM. Yeah, definitely. That sounds really good. What about the question of kind of control? You know, one of the things that that kind of gets said often is is around LLMs hallucinating and all this kind of stuff, like. From what you've been discussing so far, it sounds as though a lot of your customers use Cohere in conjunction with other business data. So perhaps that's where the control is. But I'm just wondering your thoughts in terms of for businesses or for individuals wanting to use these LLMs, how do you manage that potential for hallucination or incorrect content? Yeah. So this is, yeah. So this is, I think, something people get wrong with LLMs sometimes. Um, Like LLMs are not a good source of truth. Like, an L, like a large language model has no notion of what is true or what is not true. It just has a notion of statistical correlations in sequences of words. Like that's it. Mm-hmm. It turns out that statistical correlations of words is like good enough to often say things that people interpret as true. Um, mm-hmm. Because read a bunch of stuff from the web, like, you know, there's way more sentences that say, uh, you know, Ottawa is the capital of Canada than there are sentences that say Halifax is the capital of Canada. Mm. So if you say, what is the capital of Canada, you're probably going to get Ottawa. But that's just because it's, that's because it happened to show up that often, right? Um, you know, if you, if you say, like, who is the prime minister of, of the UK, uh, spits out all kinds of things. You know, that seems like it changes every few weeks. So it'll say all kinds of, all kinds of things because those things have been true at v- various times. But the, but the model has no notion of time or no notion of, of as truth changes with time. It just has the statistical model. So I think the groundedness is like fundamentally important for making these things useful because you mm-hmm. as a business, you're, you know, you're actually saying what you think is true. That's what you need your user to interact with. That's the information that the user, the user didn't come there for random facts or random sentences. They came there for information. You want to make sure that information is there. So the way we, the way we deal with that and the way people who are building with LLMs deal with that is just by putting that stuff in the prompt. So the prompt is the, is the text you get the model to lead. Like you give it some text, you get some text back. If you include in that prompt, the relevant information, then it's, it's way, way, way less likely to hallucinate. Um, Mm -hmm. That's still like, I think that's still, you know, it still might, you still might get an output that's incorrect. Um, the way the modeling works is there's some noise, there's some randomness in it. So that means there's some use cases though. Like I just don't ever think, like I don't think LLMs are ever are going to be useful for some things. For instance, I don't mm. think you're ever going to want to, I think you're always going to want to talk to a doctor. I don't think you're ever yeah. going to say, here's my medical history. <laughs> LLM, tell me what to do. You might use it as like a way of thinking or like, you know, learning about it yourself or like, you know, or, or like browsing, it might be an interface for browsing through medical journals or something. That's it. But like, you know, your health, you're never going to want randomness in the thing <laughs> that was output. You're going to want somebody to say, I've studied this. Uh, I'm, I'm the expert. I, as a human, talk to you as a human. I tell you, this is my, uh, this is my best like thinking. This is, this is what I think is the right answer. Uh, mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, interesting, interesting. Um, we've got a couple of questions. Let me just see if we can pick through these. Uh, how long do you think before customers are using LLMs against businesses or to reduce the need for contact? What are the pros and cons? You might have to elaborate on that a little bit, Mike, if you don't mind. Charlie, what are your views on adding radioactive tags to responses coming from LLMs? I'm looking oh. at it from an educational point of view and academic integrity. Oh, that makes sense. Um, radioactive meaning like, like what are we looking at the tags of somebody putting out text uh, that is somehow noticeable? So you could say, hey, this was generated as by an LLM or this was not. Ah, okay. Right, yeah, I think so. Um, so there are some techniques that you can do to like detect generated text. Um, I expect those to not work for very long. And I expect them even like even now work very well. Like even now you can output text. How would you how would you even do that though? Because well, so I have seen some examples of that, but how does yeah. that how are you even supposed to do that? So here's one technological way you can do it. Um, you can take a language model and you can take some text and you can get the language model to calculate what is the probability that I would have output that text. And if the probability is right. very high, you can say, hey, well, this model could have done it. Like maybe it, maybe it didn't, but it could have, you know, that's like one thing. Um, another thing is you can train a classifier on all human texts, like all real text and all synthetic text. And there are some statistical differences between them. Like our, our statistical modeling of language doesn't quite match the real distribution of language. People, like for instance, people are much better at using words, like really unlikely words effectively. So like, you know, right. maybe, maybe there's a word that like once a year you say, but when you say it, you say it in the right way. Um, mm. Language models are like not quite as good at that. So there's some statistical things that are different and you can try to use that. But I think over time, those will get worse. As our ability to, to model language gets better, I think that detection will get worse. Um, I, for academic integrity, don't think this is that big of a deal. I, mm. think, I think knowing that the text you're reading is synthetic is very important for other use cases. For instance, I think it's very important that if you're reading from a bot, you know that it's a bot. I think that's really important. And that's why, like, in our terms of use, it says you can't pass what is written here off. Like, you can't, you can't generate from this bot and send it to a person and say, a human wrote this. You mm -hmm. can generate from the bot, have a human read it, and be like, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I, that's good. I clicked the thing. Great. I, like, I wrote that. And, like, mm -hmm. if the human agrees with what's said and is happy with it and sends it off, I'm fine with them saying, like, this is, this is from me. Like I, I, as a person certify that this is what I wanted to communicate. I'm communicating it. Um, I think this is going to require a change to the way people mark undergrad essays probably. But like, if you mm -hmm. go back through the history of, I, I mean, hell, I was like seeing things of, you know, I think I'm going to get this wrong because my ancient history and philosophy is not great, but there's a time of Plato being like, we should really be worried about writing because people aren't going to remember things correctly anymore if they can just refer to <laughs> text that was down, you know, and I, you know, people said the same thing about all, I mean, like I'm a person, like I, I'm, I'm a very bad speller. I can hardly spell. Um, spell check was a, was super useful for me. And I remember there was a time when teachers were like, you know, you're never going to learn how to spell. This is a thing you got to work on. It's going to slow you down forever mm. like that. And now that I spell check, like it, you know, it, it, it helps a lot. So I think education will have to respond similarly. Like if you're asking a student to write an essay and the essay can be generated and you can get a great mark from 
like a, a from you know a, a large language model it's probably not like how useful is it for the is, is that really the question you want to be asking the person like is that really the way you want to be teaching them i think mm. yeah so i'm not sure yeah. if, if the question is here come up with a, a novel idea that you believe in and write down your argument and then use an llm to expand on that argument for the sake of uh, time or something or like you know if you you have this idea you want to write it you've used it to like, you know, help you write that conclusion, which is often difficult to synthesize all of your points or something like, I think that's great. But if the question mm-hmm. is just like, write a thing, generate it from this thing. And now that, like, if that was good enough, that probably wasn't the right test anyways. So yeah, I know yeah, that's, that makes I know, sense. I might be wrong about that. Like, that's an opinion that I, like, I, I know, you know, my sister is a teacher. I actually haven't spoken. Well, I actually haven't spoken to her. About this, <laughs> I thought you were going to say, I haven't spoken to her since I told her this idea. No, 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 no. no. Her students are a little young, so they don't, uh, they don't, they wouldn't be writing essays. But um, she's always been very technologically, uh, she's always like ahead of the curve on this. So I'd be curious. Um, but anyways, I might, I might yeah. be wrong about that, but that's my current, that's my current view on it. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, no, it makes sense though, because what essentially what that is framed as is, this test is a test of your ability basically to kind of remember lots of stuff, which is a lot of what school is kind of thing, isn't it? It's about remembering things and then regurgitating things often. Would you agree or not? Yeah, I certainly was that way to begin with. I found as I went along in my academic career, every year was a little less of that. And that meant that every year I enjoyed it more. Yeah, Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, that's fair enough. Where do you stand on... um, for example, there was something on LinkedIn I saw from a guy who had, uh, in a, in the space of about five days, written a book on something like, uh, I can't remember what it was, data security or something like that, um, using ChatGPT. Mm. And my question was, it wasn't a statement in terms of an opinion because I don't have an opinion on it yet, but the question yeah. that I had was, who gets the kind of credit for the book who gets the remuneration from the book and is there a danger that somewhere in that book there is some plagiarism so yeah this is a big topic these days um it's relevant for language models and also relevant for image generation um i think it's i think it's a little more relevant for image generation um Mm. because i think and this is like a scientific opinion and perhaps, yeah, and this is something that's probably changing. I think image models right now are better at remembering things exactly that they've seen only once than language models are. For the most part, like when a language model regurgitates something verbatim from the training set, it's because it's seen it many, many, many times. It doesn't do it very often with like one, just one example. Um, so that means you're like less likely to get that. I, I also think um, if you're, you know, as the space of language is so huge that as soon as you like that, it's, it's pretty unlikely for you to be able to get the model to regurgitate like a paragraph exactly that somebody else wrote. Um, mm. If that could happen, I mean, it, in our use case, like in our, in our terms of service, like right now, if you use something with Cohere, like that's, that's your text. Um, right. And we're confident in saying that, like, you know, we've trained it from, you know, at most of like as much of the web, the open web, the public web as we could, but then we refine it now on, on use cases, on individuals, we refine it on feedback. And that feedback is stuff that we're, uh, we're listed that uh, is that we're creating in house. Um, so in our, in our terms of service, you, you would, you would own it. And I think statistically 
that's actually like a, a fine point of view because it's so unlikely for you to regurgitate something completely. Now, I would say that book that that guy wrote, probably not very good. Just like, <laughs> just like it's probably not like if you've written a book and you wrote it in five days just by generating from a model, I, because like it's, it's probably not verbatim from anybody else, but it's going to be a pretty clear synthesis of stuff that's already written. Hmm. You're going to be getting like, especially if it's about a topic that lots of people have already written and is available publicly on the web, you're going to get, I actually think that the quality of the output would be similar to somebody just sitting down and themselves writing for five because they've read all these things before, some of it they're going to remember and have forgotten, but they'll write it in different sentences, like some of it, but it probably won't be very good because they haven't added anything new to the discourse. Um, mm. So I don't, like, I don't think we're going to see, like over the, you know, there are lots of people who, who generate spam books and then try to, there's like a whole world of people generating, writing terrible books through uh, hiring uh, writers and then like hiring a voice mm. actor to voice it and then putting it on Amazon on audible to try to make money from it or something. And like it, you know, nobody's really benefiting from, from that being added to the discourse. I wouldn't, I'm sure people might try to use language models for that there too. I don't think many people are going to read those books. <laughs> I don't think, it's not really, you know, it's not really the way to make yourself known as an author. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Um, what about the, what about the future then? What, what are, Let's. What are some of the things that you really wish LLMs could do that they can't do today? Um, that's a great question. Um, that they can't do today. I mean, there's a lot that they can do to. So there's some <laughs> things that I think LLMs will always be bad at, and I'm fine with that. Like I said at the beginning, like LLMs are not a good source of truth. Like, and I don't think they should be. Like, I don't think we should try to get LLMs to store in their weights the set of true facts about the world. I don't think mm. that's useful. So, so I don't think they're good at that, but I don't want them to be. Like, we have other mechanisms for that. We have other mechanisms of determining what the database is, like what the facts are. Um, mm. I wish they could follow instructions better. I wish uh, it was easier to, like... I wish it, oh, I wish they had longer context windows. Actually, that's a really, this is a very, this is a very clear one. Language models right now have like a finite amount of text they can like hold in memory effectively. You give it like the transformer has, you know, I said like a probabilistic model of a sequence of text. Well, there's a maximum mm -hmm. length that sequence can be. Right. I wish that was good. Yeah. And so that means like sometimes people will be like, hey, can I summarize like an article I wrote? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. You just put the article in the prompt. You write like TLDR at the bottom and then you click generate and a summary will come out. Like, that's so yeah. cool. Like, can I summarize, can I summarize like, you know, a novel I wrote? And I'm like, eh, it's going to be a lot harder. Like, that's going to be, right. you're going to have to like iteratively <laughs> like summarize the first page and then the second page and then take those summaries and summarize them and something and like that's, you're probably going to drift. Um, mm. So I wish the context window was larger. Yeah. And that, that's something that will happen. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. That's a good point. Um, it's always been my kind of, opinion that most of the stuff that people do on a daily basis can mm -hmm. kind of be like broken down into something akin to a conversational interface like everything you, you do on a, on a computer for example in yeah. theory there's no reason why you need to be typing and mousing and all this kind of stuff yeah. because it's just it's just 
things, you know, it's just button clicks and so on. So everything really could be a conversational interface. And this is what I thought Alexa would kind of kick off. It didn't quite get to that point. But I'm wondering yeah. where you're seeing the future from a kind of human computer interaction point of view going based on large language models and where that go. Will everything be a conversational interface or do you think there's a lot more to it than that? No, I think everything will be a conversation interface. <laughs> like not not everything. Like I think there's some things that are gonna like not everything. Uh, I think like you're not gonna use a conversational interface to play League of Legends. You're probably yeah, you're not gonna use do. a conversational interview interface um, to use like Illustrator to to paint on your computer. You're you're probably not gonna use it to type. You're probably faster at typing it than you are at dictating. And like that's it's kind of helpful, I think, to have to do that. You might occasionally type when you you might speaking, you might sit back and like think something slowly, but you're going to type. Um, but I think the the default interface will be language. Yeah. And I think that because we spend our entire lives learning language, like that's the, that's arguably, that's one of the things we spend the most time off of on. And it's always been really weird to me that we sit in front of a computer and don't use any of it like that. And the reason why we don't use any of it is that is going back to that, like Alexa didn't work. Like Alexa doesn't work. People don't ask questions of their, like, I don't really know any very often. And that's because it it looks like it's going to work, and then it doesn't. And as soon as it doesn't a few times, it's enormously infuriating. Like, wow. Uh, you ever been, like, trying to tell your Google Home to stop playing a song that's terrible? And it's like, <laughs> what? I can't hear you and continue to play it. Wow. Yeah. Did so you say I, turn it up? It was how yeah, much to say turn it off. It would turn it off. <laughs> Now, to be fair to Google Home, like that instance right there, that actually is probably has nothing to do with the language modeling, and that's just with the audio. Like, there's still lots of yeah, smart people yeah, yeah, yeah. On taking taking audio and turning that into text. Um, yeah. But yeah, I do I do think that's that's where we're going to move. Like, I think in the next few years, you will frequently interact with a computer through natural language, and whether that's dictating or writing out things. Yeah, I think the future will be you'll be like, you'll open up your browser. And there'll be a little bar and you'll just say what you want it to do. And instead of like Google searching and then clicking the link and then doing the thing, you'll just be like, oh, show me the, you know, show me the, the headline of the BBC or something or, you know, mm. buy me a, yeah, buy me a new guitar or something from this store and I'll just link you to it. No. Yeah, yeah. Nice, nice. That sounds absolutely ideal. Thank you so much, Nick, for joining me. This has been an immense eye-opening conversation that uh, I've really enjoyed. I'm sure those tuning in would have enjoyed it as well. So thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Yeah, really enjoyed the time. Thank you for having me on. We really appreciate it. No worries. No worries. And for those of you that want to check it out, I recommend going to cohere.ai, C-O-H-E-R-E.ai. Just to give a, just to give a shout out, go to here, check out our, our playgrounds. And uh, if you do that, you'll be brought into a, a window where you can like type a command and then get the get the text output and there's all everything you need for building with that like all the code lots of start guides lots of uh blog posts describing using our various endpoints uh check it out and build some cool stuff nice one wicked do that indeed nick it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much it's been wicked thank you all right talk to you later cheers <laughs>